This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. As many of our listeners know, uh, in the last uh, week, the new census data uh, has been released, uh, at least in part, by the U.S. government. And this is data reflecting the once every 10 years uh, counting of American citizens. This is required in the U.S. Constitution. It's one of the things that we do, uh, like clockwork. And the census this year has revealed some extraordinary changes in American society. Uh, We are fortunate to be joined today. Uh, by someone who is writing some of the most interesting uh, analysis of this uh, material, someone who's really looking at what the census tells us uh, about how our society is changing. This is my colleague and friend, uh, Stephen Pedigo. Stephen is a professor of practice at the LBJ School at the University of Texas at Austin and the inaugural director of our really cool uh, Urban Lab. And I'm sure some of the cool stuff they're doing will come up in our conversation. Uh, Stephen uh, has advised more than 50 cities and regions across the world. I was looking through on his website uh, some of the really cool projects he's been involved in, uh, all kinds of things related to transportation, urban planning, really, really cool stuff. Uh, His real specialty is helping uh, urban environments uh, learn to be more creative, innovative, and particularly inclusive communities. Uh, it's it's going to be really interesting to hear what Stephen has to say uh, about the census uh, for us today. Stephen, thank you for joining us. Jeremy, thanks for having me. I'm excited to uh, geek out with you guys about numbers. <laughs> that's that's what we like to do: geek out on the numbers and understand historical change. Uh, before we turn to our conversation with Stephen, of course, we have uh, Mr. Zachary's poem for today. Uh, we're excited to hear what you've come up with. If you could zoom in on the map and see. The refugee who traces poems at night, the family that sits under a tree, a purple mountain majesty of sights. If only you could hear their ageless sigh, if you could see the face that is the spot, if you could only look them in the eye, up close the orange mark, the census dot. If you could make a perfect photograph from this, the heap of our uncaring hate, If you could find a piercing epitaph, in these the hopes, the visions told to wait, it would be worth it all, the endless quest, for you to find a vision, not oppressed. It is a true sonnet. Wow. What what is your poem about? My poem is really about um, the ways in which the American city is defined by inequality and by racial oppression, um, and the ways in which the, the, the census count reflects that. And how like these this data can seem really abstract, but what we're really talking about is uh, a singular person or, or a group of people, and 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 their experience and the oppression that they face. Right. Wow. Wow. Well, and I'm sure many of these themes will will come up, uh, Stephen. To give us some background for understanding some of these themes that Zachary raises, what what really struck you as new and different in this census as compared to other censuses that we've had before? Yeah. Sure. Um, so let's just talk. I think we'll start with like maybe four kind of headlines that really jumped out at me. Right. Um, first I think is obviously, um, the U S is growing, but we're growing a lot slower than we've grown in the past. Right. So, um, we've went from about 331 million Americans, uh, excuse me, we're at 331 million Americans from about 308 
Um, that's about a 7% increase. It is this, you know, the second smallest increase um, that we've seen in terms of in terms of the U.S. census only since after the Great Depression. So it's we're growing a lot slower. I think that to me is, is, is quite striking. I think if you look at where the growth is happening across the country, um, we see the de- continued decline of the Rust Belt and the boom of the Sun Belt. And the census really sort of speaks to that now, right? You've got um, nearly seven in 10 people um, in the U.S. now living in the Sun Belt. And when I call it Sun Belt, I'm sort of thinking the Mountain West, Texas, Arizona, Florida, right? So you've got the Sun Belt really rising up. up. Um, and that's going to play out, obviously, as we talk about congressional um, redistricting things to that affair. Um, you know, thirdly, I think what's interesting to me is, is is how much more diverse we've become as a country. And I think this speaks to Zachary's poem, but it also speaks to I think a lot of the, the uh, challenges that we have uh, are facing in the next few years about how we grow in more equitable uh, um, equitable cities and communities and metros, but we're way more diverse. Um, white population has declined across the country, um, and you know, um, BIPOC populations have grown. In fact, I think one of the most striking headline out of the, of the census for me was out of the Texas data, and that is that if you look at the number of new Texans, about ninety five percent of all new Texans. Um, and there's a lot of us, there's about a thousand of us new every day are, um, are people of color. And so that's going to have significant ramifications, I think, about the way we build more inclusive economies going forward. And um, Zachary's right in his poem. I mean, I use this data all the time to drive um, strategic work for cities and counties and regions. And, um, and so it's going to be interesting about how we marry strategy with some of this data. So, so Stephen, just building on these excellent points uh, about diversity, uh, about slower growth, about uh, the shifting nature of the U.S. population, in a sense, from northern Rust Belt, midwestern Rust Belt to uh, the Sun Belt, uh, as you put it. Um, is it also indica- indicative that we've become a more urban society? Is that a fair reading? Oh, absolutely. Of this? I mean, if you look at the data, I mean, across um, across the U.S., um, it is most of the uh, most of the growth um, happen in urban areas. And in fact, now I think if you look across the U.S., I was looking at this earlier. Uh, I think about eighty-seven percent of the uh, U.S. population now lives in a metropolitan uh, metropolitan environment. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of a geek about Texas data. I think you know that, um, Jeremy. And one of the things that's that's really striking to me, just to give an, put a, a pin in that for you is that um, prior to the U.S. Census, about, you know, about 87% of Texans lived in metropolitan areas. Now, again, it's, it's almost 90 to 91% of all Texans live, um, and live in metro areas. And the other thing that's interesting is that if we look at Texas again, um, if we talk about what we call the Texas Triangle, and I'm talking, you know, for folks that are listening that aren't familiar with, with that, it's the Dallas-Fort Worth metropolitan area down to uh, Houston, over to San Antonio, and up in Austin, kind of forms forms this triangle. Um, what's interesting about that is is uh, is that nearly seventy percent of all Texans now live in that triangle. And if you look at all the data of people that have moved, right, we are the sort of the booming state. Us in Utah, Arizona, and Florida, nine in ten Texans moved to the um, to the metropolitan areas of, of Austin, Dallas, and San Antonio, and Houston. And so. We are absolutely more more urban, and if you look at the data across the country about rural uh, rural communities, um, significant decline um, um, in, in rural communities, um, not just in the Rust Belt, but also in, in places that you would expect, you know, places that are booming um, here in Texas, for instance, or 
Um, even out west in some of the western mountain states have seen significant declines in their rural communities as well. Why do you think that is? I mean, it, we, we've long been a society that's had both rural and urban communities. Obviously, in the 19th century, we were a predominantly rural society. Uh, but the 20th century is really a, a century of mixed rural-urban living. Uh, why do you think we're going so heavily in the urban and more diverse yeah, direction? Yeah, Jane Jacobs 101, um, uh, the great urbanist, right? That is the the idea yes, of yes. sharing of ideas, um, ideas, um, and that is that we're now a knowledge-based economy. And so knowledge-based economies like um, requires people and you and I to come together to share ideas, to formulate um, new thinking. And so and innovation is very much driven about proximity. And so um, the idea of, of just the makeup of the industrial-based economy, um, moving from industrial-based economy to a knowledge-based economy, or what you know, what colleague Rich Florida would call a creative-based economy, is required us to come together, a cluster, to create these nodes of of innovation, um, and particularly around um, you know institutions, right? Healthcare institutions, universities, science innovation centers, and those types of things. And much of that is being, frankly, driven um, by um, by having to be in close proximity, and that's happening in metropolitan areas, frankly. Uh, the data obviously shows that, and, and you've been predicting this for a long time, along with Richard Florida and, and many of the other real uh, leading thinkers in the field that you're a part of. Uh, but it does seem counterintuitive in a moment when we're uh, living through COVID, mm-hmm. uh, when people aren't going into their offices in the same way they did before, when we're communicating in, in the way, for instance, we're recording this podcast right over the web. Uh, place seems to be less important in some ways, but you're saying that the data shows that it's actually becoming more important. How do we understand? Yeah, I actually think that place is going to be. I, I think that one of the things that could come out of this is that. So I think the way that we think about place and the use of place is that uh, for a lot of our mundane type of work that we do, right, for stuff where we need to sort of uh, maybe have independent time and thinking and writing and, and a lot of those types of things, that stuff can act, obviously will happen at home or it can happen remotely, right? Um, but the real exchange of ideas, right, where we see the friction of ideas together, the friction of innovation together is requires people to come together. And so... Um, you know, I don't think that this is the depth of distance or the depth of place. In fact, I think that what we start to see is um, is a greater emphasis, particularly in, in a, um, high driven innovation sectors um, where people come together more. Uh, maybe don't don't come together as frequently, but come together um, more um, in, uh, with 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 much more purposeful uh, time together. And so, um, you know, I think that. You know, we will probably spend um, less time in the office, but more intentional time um, together. And in fact, that may um, that may actually uh, um, play pretty well for us in terms of in terms of the innovation piece. I think one of the things that's interesting is that a lot of folks have said remote work will remote work actually save rural communities. Well, the reality is, is that without having um, access to the type of infrastructure that's needed to support remote work, right? Um, many of these rural communities can really will never really sort of be able to sort of take advantage of it. That's one of the reasons that infrastructure development continues to be such an important important piece of this um, this conversation. But at the end of the day, right? I mean, I think what's always interesting about the data, uh, particularly one of the things I love about census data, and particularly as you start to dive into census data, looking at the types of communities that form, um, you know, by uh, immigrant communities or racial communities or LBGTQ communities or any of those types of things. What's interesting is that people cluster together. There's a likeness, a community creation. And so that's the same thing that happens on the knowledge. That very much same thing happens on the knowledge base side, right? One of the things that 
um, that's come out of a lot of the work that I've done in terms of advising cities about innovation ecosystems and innovation districts and blah, 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 blah. You know, as much as mayors and officials think it's all about the beautiful buildings and the real estate, really it's not. It's about how do you bring people together. And I think that's one of the things that cities has done for a really long time and why we see the rise of urban, um, the urban economies is that, is that it's about people coming together. The other thing I would, the other additional point not to rattle on this is a lot of folks will say, if you look at the metropolitan economies of growth, yeah, it's metros that are growing, but it's all growing on the peripheral. Um, a little bit, that is somewhat true and that's somewhat false. In fact, some of our urban core areas, surprisingly, um, the one that I think is the poster child for urban growth has been the rise of New York City. You know, New York City was expected to see a significant decline in this U.S. census. And in fact, it added a substantial amount of uh, residents. It's almost 9 million residents. Um, now, same here when we look at our, in Texas, many of our urban economies, particularly um, our urban counties, Travis, um, Travis County, for instance, Dallas County, um, um, the inner urban core of, of Harris County, we've seen significant population increases that have kind of, met, frankly, been a bit dwarfed by some of the suburban growth, but also continues to be pretty strong. Um, so I think it's clear then that cities and America as a whole have become more diverse, but have American cities and American communities at large become more integrated? So that's a really interesting question, right? I think once the date, once we're able to get the data and, and really dive into the data and look at the way um, the the neighborhood comp- uh, the confirmations of neighborhoods or the makeup of, na- of neighborhoods, I think that's a question to ask and that we'll be able to answer. The data just hasn't been released at at, at at that granular of a level yet for us to be able to do that analysis. But there will be in, in the coming year, absolutely an interesting uh, look at that for sure. I mean, generally speaking, I think what we know, right, is that is that we actually probably aren't becoming more integrated. In fact, we continue to probably become more segregated. Um, that's been what some of the trends have looked at. If you follow the trends over the over the past few uh, years using the ACS data, the American Community Survey data, is that in fact we've actually become more segregated. The question is, will we be able to confirm that when we look at the U.S. Census? I think that probably will be the case. It does seem, Stephen, that, for instance, taking a city like Austin, the uh, the inner core, which we used to call the inner city, right, in negative terms 20, 30 years ago, right, has now become the cool part of the city. And from what I saw in the data, has become whiter. Uh, and then the outer core has become wider. And then a lot of places in between have become more diverse. Is that a pattern yeah, you're seeing across cities? That's totally true. It's the, remaking of, of, it's the remaking of cities and the remaking of suburban Areas. You know, before I went to NYU, I spent many years at the Initiative for Competitive Inner City, um, looking at distressed urban communities, uh, and particularly um, for a long time, we were focusing on um, only urban core. Um, this was Mike Porter's group out of Boston. But one of the things that we we noticed over time, and this is much, this was this was about 2010 when the 2010 census was released, is that in fact, if we really want to understand the diversity of of, of America's cities. And what do we understand some of the challenges that are facing, particularly when we look at distressed urban, distressed areas? In fact, it wasn't really as much about the urban core, particularly, Jeremy. It was these sort of old streetcar-like suburbs or those inner suburbs um, that are just outside of the urban belt, right? So not not the exurbs, but the sort of the, the inner the inner suburban ring. In fact, that continues to be the case where we've seen a much more diversification of those uh, of those suburbs. Um, we've obviously much of the work that's been written uh, from the folks at Brookings, the Brookings Institute um, has looked at the suburbanization of poverty and has said really what's happened is that we've actually seen a lot of that happening, that in fact, we're becoming, those suburbs are becoming much more diverse, but we're also seeing 
um, frankly, um, our urban cores become these sort of, in a sense, almost gated like communities. And I think that that's a lot of what the challenge of how we um, we have to think about city building going forward is how do you pull those uh, sort of pull those gates down, so to speak. Right, right. These are neighborhoods that um, are near prospering neighborhoods, but seem left behind time and again, maybe because the highway has cut them the off. The highways cut them off or there's been terrible land use planning, right? So where there's just a need to just go back and reimagine land use planning, right? I mean, that's I mean, that's one of the things that's so um, that's so important to understand the census and gets back to the poem a bit that was given is that as you think about census data, census data are numbers and peoples. And a lot of that is driven by economic policy, but all of it, a lot of it is also just driven, frankly, by the way that we as a, as cities and communities and metros have thought about land use policy as well. Um, and so I think one of the things that that we're starting to see as we become maybe a, a bit more knowledge based driven is that even, in fact, we maybe see um, some loosening around our land use codes where we see much more mixes of uses. And so rather than um, having sort of strictly, you know, the not so great uh, uses in distressed urban areas, what we may be able to do is because of technology and the lighter types of, uh, the, the different types of industries in our communities, we actually may see some of that go away. So maybe that it gives us an opportunity to think about how we can reimagine land use planning as well. But how do you do that while also making sure to account uh, for gentrification to prevent diverse communities from being kicked out of their homes or, or, or overpriced? Uh, priced out of their homes because of rising demand. How do you develop, but develop in a way that allows for affordability and allows communities to stay where they yeah, are? Yeah, if that's the million dollar question, and if I knew the answer, I probably wouldn't be teaching at the LBJ school. Um, uh, but I think it's a really important one. Yeah, I mean, so that's that's the I mean that's the really challenging question because at the end of the day, um, all of our housing policy has been retro. Uh, it's, it's sort of reactive, not not sort of proactive, right? Um, I think there's some, a lot of solutions that have to happen there. One, um, thinking through um, better engagement of, of the use of tools that we're seeing across the country, such as community land banks and community uh, trusts as a way to think about addressing some of the affordability issues, getting your private sector and incentivizing the private sector not uh, you know, to, to build more affordable housing. Um, the other thing I would say in a place like Austin, Texas, um, which is a fast-growing metropolitan area. About, we grew about 33%. We're one of the fastest-growing in the country. Um, you know, what's interesting about our city is that we're just not even building enough market-rate housing, right? So that just acerbates the affordable housing issues. And so I think, you know, if we're talking about gentrification, for me, one, it's about housing policy, that's for sure, and thinking about both market-rate and affordable housing and the mix of that. Two, using some of the tools that are that are that are really um, that are sort of new and innovative, community land trusts and community uh, land banks and uh, land corporations and stuff. That that all is new policy arenas for many many cities. Um, particularly, had been uh, much done in the northeastern part of the United States, some in California, but now we're starting to see more newer cities like ours and across others, Denver, Seattle, and others started to use those. I think using some more of those types of tools. But the other thing I think that our housing friends forget is that also I think we have to ensure that not only are we dealing with the affordable, if you want to challenge the gentrification issue, we want to do it from the housing perspective. We want to ensure that we're thinking about land use. We've got some policies in place that allow us maybe to think about how we um, uh, cap some of the property taxes or things to that affair, but also just thinking about our economic development um, issues as well. You know, making sure that we're investing in the skills of residents, getting them the, the skills that they can need to participate in the, uh, into this knowledge-based economy ensuring that they've got the right type of training, ensuring that their kids have access to, to do that type of stuff. And so 
you know, dealing with gentrification, it is fast. It's a fast moving train. But we all, um, and so it requires some short term policies, but it also calls some really long term policies as well. And and, it, and it's not just about doing on the housing side and the land use side. It's also about that economic development piece as well, I think. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And, and of course, at the root of all this is money, capital. Um, what did we learn from the census so far? Obviously, there's more data to be released. But what did we learn from the data you've seen so far, Stephen, uh, about income distributions in the U.S.? Have, have they changed? What, what can we say about them? Yeah, I mean, I think they're spike. I mean, again, I think they, they are they like themselves are kind of following um, a little bit like the Sun Belt, right? We've seen some income, in, um, uh, some spikes, obviously in the Sun Belt. Um, I think some of our um, our metro our metro area within the metro areas, I think in terms of income distribution, Jeremy, you headed at the at the beginning, and that is that the ur- the urban core or the central city uh, areas. Um, have seen significant increase in um, in income, where we've seen the decline of that in our suburban areas, right? So again, it kind of plays out onto the same thing of of this quote unquote gated city, and I think that's that's going to be one of. I mean, for me, that's that real challenge going forward is that as as we think about urban policy, and particularly, um, and, and I hate using the word urban because in fact, what we should be actually be thinking about is metropolitan policy, right? Metropolitan policy is probably the right word to be doing, and that's getting. Um, incentivizing cities and counties to work together to deal with these issues. So, you know, um, you know, one of the best metropolitan areas that have ever that's uh, that's that's always been able to sort of really tackle these metropolitan issues has has really always it has been that has been the New York metropolitan area, and that's because they sort of think about themselves as a metropolitan area, not just as a um, not just as a city. Here in Texas, for instance, dealing with the challenges of our income distribution, um, you know, it, it's it's a game of chicken a lot of times with uh, with our with our cities and our counties in terms of fighting for incentives or fighting for investment and those types of things. And so we're not thinking growing or we're not even, we're not thinking about our economic development policy in a metropolitan sense. We're not thinking about our land use policy in a metropolitan sense, nor are we even thinking about transportation. Again, just continue to acerbate those issues, right? Putting up the gate around the urban core higher and higher and higher. You know, I think you, you touched on to me, what is the most striking uh, insight so far from the census, which is, the degree to which our institutions, especially our institutions that make political choices and policy, are out of touch with these demographic changes, and I think that's part of the explanation for Texas, right? Yeah, I mean, Where so much. I'm sorry, you know, Jeremy. I mean, it, this is the thing that pisses me the most off about being a Texan, a born again Texan, I guess, <laughs> is that, um, and I, 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 is that, and I actually have a little piece that's going to be in the Texas Monthly, uh, that's going to run Texas Monthly about this, is that. Um, is that in a state like Texas, where you've got uh, we've got 29 million, te- uh, 29 million residents, you've got um, 26 metropolitan areas, um, and those metropolitan areas are as diverse as the gateway cities of Houston and Dallas um, to the tech city of Houston uh, of Austin, Texas, which um, has runaway gentrification and affordability issues we're having to deal with, to climate change on the Gulf Coast, to the decline of alternative energy, you know, the decline of traditional energy in Midland and Odessa and places like Beaumont, is that is that our state policy leaders don't understand the diversification of those metropolitan areas, that a one-size-fits-all policy doesn't work, right? And so um, our cities and counties, our city councils, for instance, for sure, are the direct line to the people, right? That the direct line, um, you know, the great Ben Barber said that if mayors ruled the world, that the most they are the most tend to be the most accountable. Um, and so, while we've got these fast-growing, diverse areas across Texas and adding lots of residents, 
Um, we have this top down. We've now embraced from a state level here in Texas, just the state, um, this abrasive um, top down policy that just doesn't work for a state that is as diverse as we are um, with um, these many uh, a set of metros are growing and um, facing many, many different types of challenges. It just doesn't work. It won't work. And, and do you see this as uh, far worse than it was with the last census? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, I mean, in the state of Texas, I would say yes. I mean, I mean, at least you had some some rationalization, some rational, not rationalization, some rational leadership, maybe in the state house. I'm probably going to get fired right, saying that, but, right. um, but yeah, you had some, <laughs> you're accurate. You had you're, rational leaders in the state accurate. house, right? Even though you're Republican controlled house and love, you know, love love or hate Rick Perry, he he at least understood diversification. He understood the market and, and what was happening here. I think what we have now is just this, um, essentially it's almost like the, it's almost like our legislature's tying the hands behind the backs of our city and county leaders and expecting them to solve the problems. Um, and that just doesn't right. work. Or, or, or is it also, uh, and this, this just builds on what you said, Stephen, is it somewhat that there's a powerful population of, rural based, or at least those who identify with a rural imagery of white citizens and white voters who feel, um, feel they're losing control of the country and are trying to just hold on to things as, 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 mo- as long as they well, can. I, think we see, I mean, it's a simple I think explanation. It's a simple explanation. Yeah. I think it could be, I think it could be somewhat true. And I think we're going to see, it's going to play out in, um, it's, we're about to see how it plays out in the state of Texas for sure. Right. Particularly when we come to redistricting. Um, um, I think that the redistrict, you know, the, the fight around redistricting in, in, in Texas is going to be an interesting case study to watch. It is going to be very, very challenging for um, a you know sort of rural Republican-driven um, legislature to gerrymander a state that is now nine and ten uh, metropolitan urban and uh, where um, you know nearly ninety-five percent of all the growth has been people of color in our metro areas. That's going to be a real challenge, I think. Right. And I think it's right. incumbent. So and, and I think, say about that. It's incumbent upon people like us, right, that are policy folks, to to keep beating the drum that we are that we are metro, that we are urban, and that we are uh, we are um, a community that's not extreme. That is not all um, you know white guys that look like me, but we are made up of um, a diverse community of black and brown uh, residents and fellow neighbors. And we um, and and so you know that's going to be, I think, really critical in terms of, in terms of ensuring that, though, that our communities are, are representative in a way that makes sense going forward. Right, right. It, it seems to me that one of the real positive takes, takeaways from the census, and we always look for yeah. the positive historical lessons on the podcast, um, is that uh, despite a lot of the um, intolerant rhetoric we hear in our society, uh, we really are growing more diverse, and we are becoming a, a society that really embraces uh, many, many more lifestyles. Uh, how do you think we can best get that message out? Is it is it telling the metropolitan story? What else should we be saying so that we can recognize what's really happening, not what people are telling yeah, us? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I mean, so I love, I mean, the census data for me, particularly if you're a Texan and a person that studies Texas cities and a person that loves metro areas, um, it is a, it is a story to be cheerleading, right? I mean, it's a story where um, you're adding a thousand new Texans a day, uh, nearly uh, 1,100 new Texans a day. Um, 95% of them are people of color if um, and they're very educated as well. We, I think the data is going to show that they're going to be much more educated. They're much more urban. Um, and 
Um, so for me, like, um, that's absolutely, you know, absolutely fantastic. And in fact, if you look, well, the other thing I would say about this is that if you look across the Texas metros, right, and not to make this the Texas show, but it's what I know. If you look at the Texas metros, and there are 26 of them, um, all 26 except for one grew um, uh, was uh, was on the positive side of uh, was was in the positive side of uh, in terms of in terms of population gain. Um, only Wichita Falls is the only metropolitan area uh, in, the, in Texas that declined. And so, um, if you if we are thinking about communicating a message about metropolitanism and diversity, Texas becomes the poster child for that. We are again um, much more diverse. Um, um, our Hispanic population now is nearly forty percent of our residents. Um, it is a place that um, has strong G, um, LGBTQ communities as well, and so you know I think that there is a lot of good to be told out of the census. And frankly, I think it's it's also just a great story for economic development. You know, I always come back to well, how do you, what's the story and how does it come back to strategy for cities? What we know now is that is that um, is that our students, Jeremy, want to work in more diverse communities. Our students want to live and work and have access and do work in those communities. We know that corporations are wanting to hire more diverse workers. And so for me, as a Texas economic development story, this is great. We're, we're kind of the front. We are really the front or the face of what, um, what frankly, um, America is going to look like um, and will look like in the future. It, it's so true. And you say it so well, Stephen. It's, you know, on, on the one hand, what you see coming out of a lot of the politics in Texas looks retro, retrograde and reactionary, but yet the state itself is the leading edge of all kinds of extraordinary positive changes uh, in terms of diversity and in terms of new lifestyles. Yeah. And I mean, creativity. the last thing I would say is that, and, you know, I love telling what people ask me, why did you come back to LBJ school? Or why did you come back to Texas? You were living in New York. And I said, well, if you really want to stand, understand what the future cities are going to be like, it's going to happen here in the U it's going to happen here in Texas, just because of all those yep. things that we, that, that, we, that we're, that we're talking about. And if you want to understand how a 15-minute city is going to be built and what that looks like. That's happening in Texas. We've been doing 15-minute communities for, for many, many years. If you want to understand cities that have that are going to re that are going to build brand new transportation systems and what that looks like in terms of displacement and how we manage gentrification, that's going to be done here in, here in a place like Austin, Texas. If you want to be able to think about communities that are going to be extremely global and international, that's Houston, that's San Antonio. Um, the, you know, the birthplace of public-private partnerships, Dallas, Fort Worth. And so a lot of, if you're really interested in metropolitan cities and it's metropolitan and urban policy, this is a great place to do it because this is really is the future, I think. Very well said. And, and you predicted in, in your move, you predicted where things were going. Uh, Zachary, as, as a young person who, you know, sometimes can face a lot of negative news out there, right? There's so much. This is, you know, Certainly, yeah. We, we, we see the, the collapse of a 20-year investment in Afghanistan at the same time that the census comes out. Do you see a positive story here? Do you see hope in this? And do you think other young people will see hope uh, in the census? I think so. I think there's this, I think that in many ways, multiculturalism has become the norm uh, in these very metropolitan environments, perhaps not outside of them, and, and especially in my generation. And I think that um, the continued sort of movement of people within our country, and uh, and 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 just the the, the bare facts of of, uh, of which populations are growing and and, and which aren't, uh, mean that 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 that's going to continue uh, to to be our reality for a very long time. 
Right. I think yeah, that's, that's very well, well said. said. I think this set. Uh, Stephen, last last question for us to close on. What what do you think uh, is the most interesting thing that hasn't come out yet in terms of the data that you would suggest our listeners look for in coming weeks and months from your analysis and others? Yeah, look, I mean, I think I'm always interested to see what's going to happen with, um, you know, looking at um, immigrant data. I think that's always really interesting to me. Um, I'm really interested to look about how asking the questions are um, where are skilled residents moving, you know, in terms of the educated educated class. Do we really see them happening in urban areas? Are they happening in other places that we, that we don't think? So I think some of that's going to be um, quite interesting to look at. I think asking the question and looking about how um, people are commuting and are, are we seeing the rise of, uh, of different types of modality in terms of the way that we're commuting, particularly um, um, those, those points I think will, will be quite interesting. Um, I don't know. I, I'm just a geek about this stuff. I love this stuff. I think it's, it's, <laughs> it's fascinating to me. Um, and um, it is, this is kind of, it, it, it's, it's interesting. I was on holiday last week and I was up at, in the middle of the night looking at census done on numbers and my husband's like, what are you doing? I'm like, this is like Christmas for someone like me. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, so. you know, it, it's, it's an archive of historical change. I mean, it's, it gives us a snapshot of over, you know, a 10 year period, how our society has changed. We're, we're fortunate, Stephen, to have people of your knowledge and experience analyzing this and helping us make sense of it. Um, thank you for joining us today, Stephen, and, and sharing your Yeah, thanks for the questions. It was great to be with you guys. And, and Zachary, thank you, as always, for your poem and your insights. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners. Uh, thank you for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.